Well, we're two days away from Election Day. In two days, we will know who the next president will be. In two days, we will know the makeup of the next Congress, who the members of the city council will be for our city, and what the people of the state of California have decided on 17 different propositions. Now, in two days, one of the most bizarre political seasons that anyone can remember is going to be over, and I'm, I'm actually looking forward to the end of, of this season. Uh, I am not personally going to miss seeing Donald and Hillary arguing so much on TV. I'm definitely not going to miss all of the political ads. I'm not going to miss all of the mail that's been coming to my house in the last month. You know, these, these TV ads and billboards and direct mail pieces, are, I think, are more annoying than they are helpful. You know, you, you just can't make a good decision based on a 30-second TV spot or what's uh, written down on a piece of direct mail. All they tell you is a slogan. Uh, for the campaign or for the proposition. And no one, of course, picks a bad-sounding slogan. They all sound great. You know, for example, here's a piece of mail that uh, I got on Proposition 55, and the slogan for Prop 55 is, Help Our Children Thrive. Now, I like children, so that sounds great. I mean, I have two granddaughters. I, I love them. I want them to thrive, and I want all children to thrive. So I should vote yes, right? Well, maybe. But, you know, if you look into it a little bit more, it's, it's, it involves a little bit more than helping children thrive. That's a part of it, but it's a little more complicated than that. turns out Prop 55 is, is about taxes, not just kids. And, well, that's, that's, that's a little bit more complicated of a decision than just vote yes for kids. There's a little more involved to it. Prop 61, here's another piece that I got in the mail. Promises to lower drug prices. Now, that sounds great. But if you read the fine print, you discover that the law only applies to 12% of Californians. Dig a little deeper and you find out that it turns out the proposition was written by the head of an HMO that exempted his own company from the law. Well, that's <laughs> concerning. So what really is this proposition about? Well, you, you have to dig a little deeper to, to kind of look at the issues in order to make a good decision. Now, it's the same problem when it comes to deciding who to vote for, when it comes to the candidates. I mean, here's a guy who's running for city council. I don't know him personally. Seems like a nice enough guy. But this is what it says about him. He is trusted, he is endorsed, and he is dedicated. Well, those are good things. That's the kind of leadership that this city needs. But I don't know him any better than the other candidates. Now, if I got a flyer from another candidate and it listed the three qualities right next to his, instead of being trusted, endorsed, and dedicated, if this guy said he is sneaky, he's hated by others, and he's lazy... Okay, I could pick between those two. You know, when you, when you put them side by side, I, I could say, you know, I, I think we want the dedicated one, not the, the lazy one. Then I could decide. But, of course, you're never going to get a piece of mail that says, you know what, I'm, I'm just trying to get a uh, you know, little influence here and I'm, I'm lazy. No, they all sound great. So when it comes to the propositions particularly, we are given a tool to help us push through the fog of, of all the slogans and all the banners and Try to get at the facts. It's called the Voter Information Guide. You probably all received this in the mail. I'm sure you've all poured through this, read all of it in great detail. This is, this is my own copy. And this contains, particularly as it relates to the propositions, all that you really need to know about the propositions. It contains the text of the proposition. It contains um, things that have been written both for and against, so you kind of get to see both sides of the issue related to the propositions. And so this really is all you need to know when it comes to deciding on the proposition. So if this contains 
all the facts that you need to know to make a good decision on the propositions. Why is so much money being spent on TV ads and media pieces? I mean, do they really think we are so dumb that we're going to make an important decision about a proposition without having read this? Do they really think that? Apparently. It's not because we're dumb. It's what they really know is we're just busy. I mean, who? I'm not going to have the time to read through this whole thing. Who has the time to read through this voter inf- the official voter information guide? And so they know when it comes right down to it that we are smart enough, we could read through the whole thing, and we really could educate ourselves and make the best possible decision. But given everything else we're doing, we're probably just going to make our decisions on the propositions based on, and really the candidates, based on our impression. And so they're going to spend all kinds of money shaping our impressions with the slogans. Now, thankfully, we only elect a president every four years, so come Tuesday, the cascade of ads and slogans will come to an end, finally. But we don't get a break from personal decision-making, which is what we've been talking about in this series. You know, family life is going to go on Wednesday after the election, and it's going to require decisions both big and small. And come Wednesday, the people that you work with and the projects that you're working on, well, they're going to require some decisions too. You're going to have to keep figuring out what to do with that. And as this year begins to wind down and come to an end and we begin to look to the next year, we're going to face some decisions, again, both big and small, important decisions. And like in the political decision-making process, we will either rely on slogans or we will rely on the information guide, the facts. Now, the slogans used in personal decision-making don't come through the mail. They are embedded in our culture. You hear the slogans in the conversations that people have. You hear them embedded in the movies we watch and in the television shows we watch. They show up in good-sounding statements, like, for example, do whatever makes you happy or follow your heart. Those those sound like positive, good-sounding slogans that would be great. And so a lot of times people, they come to a point of decision and they, they reach back into their memory banks and what they've experienced and they pull out a slogan from the culture and they... They just make a decision, an important decision, and it doesn't always turn out so good. You see, like the propositions, we will vote on the decisions of life, but the decisions that we vote on are are far too complex to reduce just to a slogan. So God has given us a personal voter information guide. My copy uh, looks like this. It's called the Bible, God's Word. This contains God's words spoken over a period of history of about 1,600 years to 40 different authors, and it's recorded in 66 books compiled in this one book called the Bible. Now, in the past, I've presented a summary of the evidence behind why the words in this book are not just human words, but are actually God's words to us. And I'm not going to take a time to to go into the detail of the evidence behind why these are not just human words and why they are, in fact, God's words. But if you have questions on this, I would encourage you to listen to the message that I did a couple of years ago on this. So we're going to put that message right next to this message when we post this message on our website. So if you go to listen to this message, you'll see a link to that message, and you can download uh, or stream that uh, message uh, that will help you. So if you've got questions on Whether this really is God's Word or if it's just a bunch of human authors, I would encourage you to listen to the evidence behind that and then do your own thinking on that. But today, I want to talk about 
how to use God's word to guide us as we make decisions. We're going to look at two verses in particular out of Hebrews, a New Testament book of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. And here's what it says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Three factors that are being talked about in this verse as we use God's word to guide our decisions. Factor number one is God's word is detailed. It's detailed. As it says in this passage, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. Now, a double-edged sword was about the sharpest instrument available at the time that this verse was written. And the point is that God's word is, is not a blunt instrument. It's not a hammer. It's more like a scalpel. It's very precise. Why does it need to be precise? Well, it's because of the nature of the way God made things in this world and the nature of who we are. We are very complicated. And so when it comes to fixing us and guiding us, we don't just need a hammer to bang on the side to get us going the right direction. We, we need precision. We need precise and detailed help. I found out last week that uh, I'm going to need uh, yet another eye surgery. If you've been around Seabreeze for a while, you know that um, I'm on the frequent flyer program for eye surgeries for some reason. So um, this will be number seven for me of, over the last couple of years. Last Christmas, I had a detached retina in my left eye, and it, uh, that's why I wasn't able to, to be here for the Christmas Eve services. But it turns out the vision just hasn't never really responded well in that eye, and, and so they did some additional testing uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it turns out that there's scar tissue from that surgery that has formed in the back of my retina, and it's causing a distortion of my vision. So if you come up to me again from my left, I might not you know, be able to see exactly what's going on. Now, the good news is it, it can be fixed, but it can't be fixed with a hammer. A blow to my head is not going to fix this problem. I need surgery done with a very small and very sharp scalpel to remove that tissue. The eye, just the eye, is very complex. So it needs the exact, precise, right, sharp instrument to fix a problem in the eye. And this is what God's Word is to our life. It's the scalpel that, that gets below the surface to do surgery on, on what? On our thoughts and on our attitudes. You see, it turns out what we think and the attitudes that we adopt really shape the decisions that we make and therefore the kind of life that we, we live. So why won't a slogan like, do whatever makes you happy, fix us? Well, because it's, it's just a hammer. It's just a simple statement. And what we need is surgery. But many people use the hammers, the slogans of our culture, and they keep doing whatever they think will make them happy, only to end up what? Very unhappy. Because it turns out we're just more complicated than a hammer can solve. We're too complicated for slogans. I mean, how many different thoughts and attitudes can a person have? Well, I don't know, but it's got to be at least in the thousands. And so one tool is not going to fix the complexity of what we think and the attitudes that we adopt. God's Word 
is the only thing that can really penetrate deep enough and is sharp enough to, to separate the categories and give us understanding below the surface of how things really are, not just how they appear, but what's really going on. Now, the sharpness of God's word is not measured, of course, in millimeters, but in words. That's why this book is so big. That's why there's so many words. There's a lot of detail in there, a lot of fine print, because there are a lot of decisions we have to make. And the world out there is very complicated. Other people are very complicated. We're very complicated. And so we we needed more than just kind of a few pages of general statements. We need a lot of of detail. The question is, will we read it? And will we use it? Last week, I received uh, this amazing offer in the mail, a complimentary seven-day cruise for two. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever received anything like this, but um, I did. And so um, it's pretty exciting. But then you look at the asterisk next to the, the, the thing, the cruise offer, and it says, see details on the back. And so I've looked enough at the details on the back to kind of figure out, well, I want to take a look at this. Now, why would anybody read the fine print on an offer like this? Why not just say, honey, we got a free cruise. Let's go. Well, if you really want to go on the cruise, you need to know the terms and conditions. Now, it turns out there are a number of terms and conditions. Now, I don't think this is a bogus offer, but there's some terms and conditions that, huh, I didn't think would be a part of needing to go on that cruise, but there they are. The reason I show you this is because you can remain vague about a cruise, about a decision, about different parts of your life, but it's when you actually want to get traction and do something in that area, you can't be vague anymore. You have to look at the detail. Slogans promise a desired outcome. Just do whatever makes you happy. And it would seem like, well, that would make you happy. But it turns out selfishness is one of the great paths to a tremendous unhappiness. So the slogan just isn't going to do it. It's the terms and conditions that determine the outcome, not the slogan. That's what you need to consider if you're really going to do something. You know, before I was a parent, I formed some, some pretty strong but some very vague opinions about how to parent. I mean, as a non-parent, it just didn't look that complicated. And the reason it looked complicated is because from my vantage point, it it looked like, I mean, you outweighed the child. So I don't understand why someone who's this big can't control someone who's this big. It, It just, I didn't understand that. And so I often would think, I don't know what's wrong with these parents. You know, if God grants me kids, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it right. But it was when I became a parent that I discovered what? It's a little more complicated than I thought it was going to be. It's a little more to parenting than meets the eye. And I needed all kinds of detailed help. I mean, I'd start calling friends who were a little far ahead and, and say something like, she just did this, what do I do? He just did that, what do I do? They're just doing this. And we did this all the way through until they moved on. And even for a while after, they were out of the house. What do we do? You know, I, I, I remember being in public when, I, when we had little ones, and I would see people just shake their heads or give me that look in their eyes, and I knew exactly what was going on because I had been on the other side of that experience. I knew what they were thinking. 
They were thinking something like, could you just control your child? How hard can it be? <laughs> oh, man. I was an idiot. I didn't know. Because I used to look at parents that way before I had kids. You know, before I had kids, I had the luxury of having vague parenting thoughts and slogans. But when I became a parent, parenting became real, and that just wasn't enough. It's hard. It's complicated. I needed a lot more detail. This is why God has given us the Bible, not just slogans like, be nice, or practice random acts of kindness. I mean, those are fine slogans. I mean, this afternoon, it would be better if you could be nice rather than mean. That's a good thing. If there's an opportunity to do something kind, please do that. But you need more than that. You know, when your 17-year-old daughter is behaving in a way that's going to take her life in a very terrible and destructive direction, you need to be able to say more than just be nice or practice random acts. You need more than that. And that's true of pretty much every area of life. So living by slogans will not fix your life any better than a hammer is going to fix my vision. We need surgery at the thought and at the attitude level. Now, if you, if you just want to feel, feel spiritual from time to time, what, whatever that means, and maybe pray generally about your life to God, then, then you can ignore all the fine print. You don't ever have to pick this up and take the time to begin to understand what's in here and what it says about you and your life and your spouse, and your children, and your money, and your job, you can just ignore all the fine print. If, you, if you're just looking for a little feeling occasionally. But, but if you really want to make traction in life, if you really want to avoid all of the pitfalls that are there, now life's going to be hard no matter what you do, but, it, but if you want it to be not as hard, then you need to get on board with God, and you have to read the fine print, and then make your decisions in light of what it says. And the reason is because of the, the second point I want to talk about, and that is that God's Word is binding. Not only is it detailed, but it's binding. This is what it says in verse 13. We just read, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Now, just because you don't read the fine print doesn't mean it isn't going to affect your life. doesn't mean it's not binding. doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you. Because how much of life is affected by these words? Everything. Now, for years, I drove around without any uninsured motorist coverage. That's not a very smart thing to do. You know why I did that? I didn't know I wasn't covered. I thought I was. You know how I found out that I wasn't covered? <laughs> Someone who was not insured ran into me. And I was told then that, oh, you don't have uninsured motorist coverage. I don't? I'm sure I do. Well, I pulled out my policy, and I read the fine print, and guess what? I didn't. I thought I did. But the fine print said, no, it's not in the contract. Well, which one? My impression of what I thought I had or the fine print? Fine print's binding. Not what I thought I had. But I hadn't been aware of it. It didn't matter what I thought or how much I pleaded. The fine print won. The fine print was binding. You know, reading the fine print after the accident, it was too late for me to, to do me any good at that point. It's like, okay, now I know. 
after I've got to pay a lot of money to fix my car. And I say this because we tend to take this approach with God's work. We think that our best defense before God will be, but I didn't know. I mean, how could you know everything in here? And so sometimes people decide, you know what? I have a sneaking suspicion that my life might change in ways I'm not sure I want it to change if I really get into this and start aligning my life by it. So I'm just going to be intentionally dense about this. And I'm just going to kind of leave it there. And I'm going to go on with my life and make my decisions the way I want. We think that at that point, when we stand before God, God will say, well, did you know? And we'll say, no. And he'll say, well, okay. If you didn't know, no, you get off now. It's not binding. Well, but that's not the way reality works. You see, the words of this book isn't, is, well, they are. They're, they're about what's real, not what we can get away with. These aren't a set of rules that God has said, hey, let me just give you a bunch of hoops to jump through, and you try to figure out all the loopholes you can figure out. No, God says, let, let me describe the way I've designed reality to work. You know, if you want to learn about physical reality, science will help you. But if you want to know about how to put life together and how to do marriage and how to build meaning out of your life and how to be truly happy, this is the way I've designed you, and this is the way I've designed the world. So let me tell you how reality is. Now, if you're going to ignore it, then reality isn't going to change because you don't know about it. You know, if you, if you step into traffic because you think there's no oncoming car, the car isn't going to suddenly change molecular structure and go right through you without touching you and hurting you because you didn't know. No, reality is reality. You step into traffic, and if you make a mistake and you just, you just didn't know, reality isn't going to change. That's the way God's Word is. It's, it's not going to change. So what... What is it that uncovered the flaw in my insurance thinking? It was an accident. You know, up until then, my, the flaw in my thinking had no effect on my life. I mean, I was carrying this thought around, I'm covered, for years. And it, I was wrong, but it, it, didn't, I didn't, it didn't affect my life at all. But then the accident came. The accident forced me to give an account of my thinking. And the conclusion is, I was wrong. I didn't know it, but I was wrong. It's often after the collisions of our life, not the automobile collisions, but when life starts hurting, that we suddenly begin to discover, you know, I, the way I thought things were, turns out I was wrong. Now, I've, been, I've been thinking wrong thoughts in this area for all these years, but now I'm ha I, have I, I discovered that I was wrong because I, I now hurt. I've been in an accident. And at that point, that's when we start getting out the fine print and saying, okay, God, how, how am I supposed to do marriage? Because I'm in a world of hurt as I'm going through this divorce. How, how, do, how, do, I, how do I handle my money? How do I, how do I clear up relationships? What, what do I do? We, have to, we will all give an account. And just because we're wrong doesn't mean reality changes. It's at that point that we look at the terms and conditions that God has set, at the point that we have accidents, that we feel pain. Now, to us, 
the pain or, or the collisions may seem ca- catastrophic, but compared to all of eternity, they're just fender benders. So if you read the fine print, one of the things that you will discover pretty early on is that you and I do not have adequate coverage for our sin. We're uninsured, big time, when it comes to sin. It's only as you get serious about God's terms and conditions on life that you discover, huh, I'm way short on the coverage. And it's only then that we discover the most important condition of all, and that is only the sinless life of Jesus Christ can cancel the debt of our sin. Now, you know, honestly, most people walking around, they don't don't think that. They honestly think, you know what, I'll stand before God and I'll be fine. I'll be fine. But they're wrong. They won't know that until that day. But reality will suddenly come. And the, the most important condition is that the sinless life of Jesus is our only hope. It's the only way that our sin debt can be canceled. So, but what are the terms of that? Well, the terms are, we first of all have to trust him as our Savior. We first of all have to come to the point where we admit the truth that, yep, we don't have adequate coverage for sin. And only Jesus can forgive. And we need to ask him to be our Savior. And then we need to follow him as our Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. Trust and obey. We don't obey perfectly, but that's the direction of our life. Now, sometimes Christians think, you know, people who have made this decision, they think, you know, okay, now I'm covered. And I can do whatever I want. You know, I've, I've got the sin coverage, and so now I don't need to think and worry about learning all the fine print, because that's just a big book, and that's just a lot of work. So as long as I, as long as I got my sin policy in place, now I can just kind of go on and do what I want to do. There are two big problems with that approach. Problem number one is the conditions of the sacrifice of Christ paying for our sin debt the conditions are trust and obey. I mean, it's, it's a life decision, not just a one-time decision. It's kind of like marriage. I mean, if I, 31 years ago, if I stood before my wife and said, I do, and committed to her, and then I went off and lived my life independently, you would say, I wonder what he thought that meant when he said, I do. It certainly wasn't marriage. Marriage is a decision that happens at a point in time, but it changes your entire life. And so when someone says, oh, yeah, I've made a commitment to Christ, and then they go off and just do whatever they want to do, a real question is to ask, but what did they think they were doing? Did, did they think that this wasn't something that is now to change the entire future? I mean, just like with marriage, I don't do it perfectly, but I work at it. The same thing with following Jesus. So one of the problems with that approach is it's just a flawed understanding of the terms and conditions of the forgiveness that Jesus offers. He doesn't say, hey, let me just forgive you for everything, and now you can just go do whatever you want to do. That's never what he says. But the second problem with this kind of thinking is, you know, again, the thinking is, oh, I've got my sin policy. I can do whatever I want now. I I don't need to work on the fine print. The second problem is ignoring the fine print is still a very painful thing to do. You know, for example, I now have uninsured motorist coverage. Does that mean I just... I'm a reckless driver because I am covered. No. Why? Accidents still hurt. 
they're still a problem. They're still a hassle. You know, just, just because I got coverage doesn't mean I now become a road warrior. No. Accidents come with real consequences, even though I have the coverage to pay for it. Same thing is true with sin. You know, if the, if the attitude is, oh, I can do whatever I want now, it's, well, that's a really painful way to live life. Yes, if you really did make a commitment to Christ, there is forgiveness. But why would you just go plowing into other cars for fun? That's painful. Now, of course, the pain that we feel as a result of our sin has a longer delay to it than an accident. But I've lived long enough now to know that, man, if I, if I head down that direction of sin, it's just going to be painful. It's going to be awful. I need help to not do that. I don't want to do that. So God's word is detailed. That's why there's so many of them. God's word is binding. If you choose to ignore it, you still live in the world that God designed, and you will discover the hard way that his ways are right. But then lastly, God's word is living. As it says here, for the word of God is living and active. It's the first thing it says, living and active. It's important to understand what those mean. What does it mean to be living, his word being living? Well, it means like you and I, we can have a conversation because I'm alive and you're alive. We can go back and forth. Well, how can that happen with a book? I mean, this, this is ink on paper. It doesn't appear to be alive. There, there's no sound coming out. There's no heartbeat. There's no breathing. I drop it. It's going to fall and not make a sound. So it appears to be dead. But it's living. How? You know, language is classified as dead when there is no longer any living person using it. Now, you can still read in a dead language, and you can still understand the words in a dead language, but you can't have a conversation with anybody in that language because nobody uses that language. For example, you can read Homer's Odyssey, and you can learn from it, but you can't have a conversation with Homer or anyone that's really using that language because he's dead. The language he wrote it in is no longer spoken. But the Bible isn't like that. True, and yes, the, the language of the Old Testament is a dead language. I mean, no one speaks classical Hebrew anymore. The, there, is a, there is Hebrew, but it's, it's somewhat different than the classical Hebrew of that time. And yes, the language of the New Testament is dead. No one speaks Koine Greek anymore. They, they speak modern Greek, but not that version of Greek. But the speaker of these words is alive. And you can have an actual live conversation with him. You don't have to learn Hebrew or Greek. All you have to do is learn the words spoken in a translation that you can understand. The words of the Bible are not just ancient pearls of wisdom to learn, but it's actually how God talks to us. Like a living conversation. How does that happen? Jesus tells us how in John chapter 14. He's getting ready to to be crucified, and then he'll rise in three days, and then in a matter of weeks, he will return to heaven. And he's getting his disciples and all of us who will follow kind of ready for what life after Jesus is going to be like. And he says this in John 14, 25 through 26, all this I've spoken while still with you, 
you know, I've, I've said all these words to you in your presence. We've had conversations. We've gone back and forth on all these things, and you remember a lot of what I've said. I'm getting ready to leave. And I know one of the concerns is, how are we going to know what to do when we can't just turn and say, well, Jesus, help. What do we need to do? You're gone. How, how are we going to go on? So he says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So Jesus is telling them that just because I'm leaving is not the end of God speaking to you like a living person would speak to you. He's saying, after I leave the earth, the Father is going to follow up my departure by sending the Holy Spirit to those who are followers of me. The Holy Spirit is, is God in counselor form. God's presence to guide us. And only those who have decided to follow Jesus get the counselor. But how does the Holy Spirit counsel? Well, like anyone does. He's aware of and listens to, like any counselor, what he's aware of and listens to what our situation is, and then he tells us and gives us advice for us to decide what to do with. The way he counsels is by reminding us of the words that are in this book. You know what language the Holy Spirit speaks? The Holy Spirit speaks Bible. That's what he talks. So if, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit is inside. But if you don't know hardly anything in this book, there's a very limited vocabulary for the Holy Spirit to use. And therefore, the instrument is more blunt than precise because you don't know very much. I mean, if all you know is John 3.16, that's a great start, but there, there's not a lot of vocabulary for God to guide you with. If you want a real living relationship with God, then you have to learn his words. You have to learn the language. Now, you don't do this by memorizing everything in this book. But, but as you use it, as you read it, and as you try to adjust your life by it, what will happen over and over again is you'll be ready to make a decision and a thought will pop in your mind. And it'll be a thought based on something that you've read. Maybe just this week or maybe months ago. And that's going to be the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I got a thought for you. You might want to think about this as you make this decision. But we have to learn his language in order for that to happen. And God's word is not only living, it's not only an active living thing, but it's also active. Now, you can be alive, but inactive. You know, in the final years of my grandfather's life, he was alive, but he was very inactive because he, he was bedridden. And if you wanted to talk to him, you always knew where to find him because he was bedridden. That's how many people think of the Bible. You know, it's just kind of sitting there passively. And if I get in real trouble, I'll pick it up and I'll try to get some help. But that's not the way it works. I mean, if you're in trouble, go ahead and pick it up. Try to figure some things out. That's fine to do. But that's, as an approach, that's, that's not going to be adequate. Because the way God does this is, is, is as you are actively involved in this, as you are actively learning this and applying this to your life, he will be active with you. Long after you've set the book down, the ideas and the thoughts from his word will still come to his mind. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. And you have to understand that God speaks primarily to those who follow him, not to visitors. If you're just a visitor, an occasional visitor to God's word, you're going to be making all kinds of decisions without his help. 
just because he, he speaks to those who really want to be active with this. This is living and active stuff. So really like pretty much anything in life, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. This is something that needs to be a, a pattern, an ongoing pattern for us. So let me get very practical on this. I want you to take the Bibles out from the chairs that are in front of you. I know we don't have enough for everyone to grab hold of, but as many as can, just go ahead and grab one of the Bibles. And if you could, turn to the book of Proverbs. It's in the middle point, somewhere near the middle point. You can use the table of contents if you want. If you're not able to find Proverbs, don't worry about it. Just flop it open and um, go with that. And I want to challenge you to, to do something. If you are not currently... Uh, reading the Bible regularly. If you don't have a plan that you're regularly using to read through the Bible, then I, wa I want to give you a plan to consider. And this is the same plan that we talked about in the last message series. So some of you may be doing this already, and that's great. I would encourage you to keep doing it. But my challenge to you is I would encourage you to read one chapter of Proverbs a day and keep doing it between now and the end, end of the year. That's two months. And if you don't have a Bible in modern English then take the one in your hands. Just take it as our, as our gift to you. We, we would love for you to have this if you're going to use it. So just take it, please. And then I would encourage you to do these three steps. Step number one is read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to that day's date. This is what we talked about several weeks ago. So today is November what? Six. So you would read Proverbs 6. And then tomorrow you read Proverbs 7, then 8, and then 9. And then you'd start back over when the month starts back over. And if you miss a day and you can make it up, do that. If you can't, don't beat yourself up. Start on the next day. Start on the next proverb. So read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to that day's date. And then number two, write down one application. Now maybe in a, a note format in your phone or maybe get a journal and just kind of write down... What's one thing that I could do today based on something that I read? Now, there may be a few days where you can't think of anything, but the book of Proverbs is so helpful that I'm pretty sure you'll find something most days. Oh, here's something I can do. It just doesn't have to be something huge, just something small. And then pray about your day. So those three things. Probably take you 20 minutes. Ask God for help and pray about those close to you. Now, there, there are eight weeks, approximately eight weeks left in the year. Can you believe it? Eight weeks left in the year. You do this for the next eight, nine weeks. I promise you, you will be different. I don't know how. I don't know if you'll be different enough that people will start walking up to you and say, what has happened to you? But you'll be different in a good way. God's Word, I've seen this in my life. I've seen this in life after life after life after life. It changes people more than anything I've ever seen. So I encourage you to do this. If you've never done this, start. If you've done it and you've kind of drifted away, jump back on and do this until the end of the year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the fine print you gave us. You gave it to us not just so we'd have a bunch of rules to try to keep and hoops to jump through, but because the world you made is complex, and we are complex. And your word is, well, it's sharp. It penetrates right down to separate the categories that we need to understand. And all of us, we're, we're facing decisions, some of them very significant. 
And, and, and we, we need to know what you say on these matters. So we just ask that you would, you would guide us. I pray that as we uh, get into your word, as we read it, that you would speak to us. We know it's not going to be an audible voice, but that the thoughts from the Holy Spirit would, would prompt us and move us in directions that will really help us. I pray for those who um, have yet to come to the decision to follow Jesus and trust him as their Lord. I pray that they would come to that point. Those in this room that need to make that decision, I pray that they would do that. God, we thank you so much for your word. We, we would be lost without it. As Peter said when you, Jesus, asked him if he was going to leave like everyone else was leaving, Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of life. We, we don't know where we, we there's nothing else that, that matches this. Help us to follow you through the challenges that we face. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.